from the National Association of Evangelicals. Welcome to today's conversation. Our topic, mental illness, suicide, and the church. Host Leif Anderson, NEE president, talks with Amy Simpson, author of Troubled Minds, Mental Illness, and the Church's Mission. Today's conversation is brought to you by Fuller Seminary. Build your own learning pathway with Fuller's flexible six-course Certificate of Christian Studies. Choose courses that fit your needs in such areas as recovery ministry or pastoral care and abuse. Study without leaving your ministry context or committing to a long-term degree program. Plus, begin in 2018 and automatically receive the Grace Fuller Scholarship, which reduces the price of tuition by one-third. Visit fuller.edu slash gracefullerscholarship for more information. And now, let's join in. I'm Leith Anderson, President of NAE, here with Amy Simpson. Amy is an author, speaker, and leadership coach. Her books include Troubled Minds, Mental Illness, and the Church's Mission, Anxious, Choosing Faith in a World of Worry, and Blessed are the Unsatisfied, Finding Spiritual Freedom in an Imperfect World. Amy's background is in publishing, serving as an editor at Christianity Today and vice president and publisher of CT's Church Ministry Media Group and Leadership Media Group. She continues to serve as a regular contributor at Christianity Today as well as other publications. Amy is also on the board of Minds Renewed, a national consortium of Christians who serve those impacted by mental health concerns and addictive disorders. And she is a certified leadership coach. So thanks, Amy, for joining us today. Thank you. I'm really looking forward to our conversation and appreciate the opportunity. So let's start at the real beginning here. How did you initially get interested in mental illness? Yeah, well, my, my interest in mental illness really comes from my own family experience. Um, I was born into a family profoundly affected by mental illness. Although I didn't, I didn't know this or didn't understand this when I was growing up, my mom has severe mental illness. She's actually been diagnosed with schizophrenia. And her mental illness was untreated for a long time. So um, it, that had a, a huge impact on my life, as you might imagine. And as my mom actually began receiving treatment and was diagnosed, then you know, I began to learn more and more about mental illness, um, how it had impacted my life, and how it impacted other people. Okay, you turned that interest into writing about it and serving the broader community and particularly the church. So. So that was another decision. What, what made you want to write about it? Well, in addition to my mom being affected by schizophrenia, my dad was a pastor for 10 years when I was growing up. So um, I have the, you know, the experience of being in a family both profoundly affected by mental illness and you know, profoundly affected by the experiences of, of church ministry. So um, I, and, and I was the odd pastor's kid who actually really loved the church, and, and I continue to love the church. And so the, the, my dual passions around mental illness and people who, who are affected by it. And, you know, my passion for the church and its mission kind of came together in this project. Um, but honestly, you know, for a long time, I've been writing for a long time. And for, for many years, I thought mental illness was, was a topic I would never write about. In fact, I was sure that was the one topic I was never going to touch because it just, I didn't, I didn't know how, how I would do that. It was so personal. Um, a lot of 
of difficulty in our family's story. And, you know, it's not just my story. It's my family's story, too. So I just didn't know that I would ever be able to do that well. Um, but, you know, God brought me to a place through my own growth and my own um, sense of, of mission um, to where I actually uh, sort of accidentally committed myself to starting to write about it. I was, I was working with, at Christianity Today at the time, and I stopped by the office of Marshall Shelley, who was the editor-in-chief of Leadership Journal at the time, and I was just saying, saying hi, saying goodbye for the day, and I, I found myself saying, you know, if you ever want somebody to write about mental illness in the church, let me know, and I didn't really intend to say that, but it, it just kind of came out. And he was really interested in that topic. And, you know, to make a long story short, I ended up writing an article for Leadership Journal. It got such a, oh, such a, a huge response. And it was clear that it had struck a nerve and that this was an area that needed a lot more um, writing and, and talking about. And so it, I went from there and wrote a book and have written a lot of pieces on this topic ever since. There are whole encyclopedias of... Um... Latin and other names for uh, different aspects of mental illness, but what would you say are the most common forms in America? And I'm going to guess that depression is close to the top of the list. Yeah, it's close, although it's actually not the most common. The most common form in the U.S. is anxiety disorders, and particularly generalized anxiety disorder, although there are other forms of anxiety disorders like obsessive compulsive disorder, um, and other like panic disorder, other anxiety-related disorders, those are the most common. And actually, over the course of a person's lifetime, um, about 30% of us will experience an anxiety disorder. Um, so, and then second is, is depression. And, and other, there are other mood disorders in that category, too, that are not as common, but that um, affect a lot of people as well, like bipolar disorder. Um, and others. So yeah, anxiety disorders and mood disorders and specifically major depression are the, by far the most common types of mental illness that people experience in the U.S. So if 30%, um, that's 30% of the whole U.S. population has anxiety disorders, did I read that correctly? Is that right? Yeah, yeah, okay, and so over the course of a lifetime, at some point in their lives, not all at the same time. <laughs> okay, so um, when you add in other um, categories, how, what, what percentage of the whole population at some time in a lifetime uh, mm -hmm. has a diagnosable mental illness? It's actually about 50% of the population over the course of a lifetime. And in any given year, um, we're looking at about 20% of adults who experience a diagnosable mental disorder. Um, or mental health problem, and and then over the course of the lifetime, it's about 50%. So this is, you know, this is no small uh, small experience or marginal experience. It's actually very common. I, I don't even know if you would know this, but of the 50%, is most of that acute or is most of that chronic? Is it episodic or um, or is it ongoing? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't, I don't have specific statistics about that, but I know it's a combination. And, um, you know, the, the fact that about 20% of adults experience a mental health problem in any given year versus about 50% over the course of a lifetime tells you that, you know, a good, a good portion of that is 
short term, um, you know, or something that is maybe not happening over the course of an entire lifetime. Um, but I don't have the specific statistics on that. There's a lot of people, no matter how you figure. Okay, so in partnership yeah. with Christianity Today, you conducted a survey of 500 churches to understand what's going on with mental health in the church. And out of that, did you find out to what extent pastors are aware that people in the congregations are suffering from mental illnesses? Yeah, this this finding actually surprised me because I was expecting, based on how our churches typically respond and how much we talk about this in our churches, which is not very much, um, I was expecting you know a lower percentage of pastors to be aware of or to kind of admit that mental illness is present within their congregations, but it was actually very high. It was 98% of pastors who were aware of some kind of mental health problem existing within their own congregation. So very, you know, virtually 100% of pastors acknowledge this is present in their churches. Um, at the, but at the same time, only 12.5% of them said that mental illness was openly discussed in a healthy way in their church. So there was, there was a, and, and there were other statistics in there that showed there's a really a, a pretty big gap between that level of awareness and the level of response, um, you know, at least a, a healthy and productive response. So we have some work to do there. All right. So myself, as having been a longtime pastor, uh, just a really practical question, and that is when a pastor has someone come in and talk and you're counseling, you're interacting. Um, how does a pastor know when a situation exceeds that pastor's skills and abilities to help? Because it would seem to me it could actually be counterproductive to try to help someone when, when you're not capable of really helping them. So how, how do you find that line? Yeah, and of course, there's a lot here that's squishy, um, you know, and going to depend on, on the specific situation and, and maybe on the pastor's skill set as well. But in general, you know, I think mental health professionals, one, one aspect of the definition of a mental health disorder that they use is that there is some kind of significant disruption to the person's life or some way in which their ability to function or their ability to cope is impaired. Um, so, and, and, you know, to cope with everyday life. So things like going, you know, getting up, going to work, um, and taking care of their responsibilities every day. There's a, there's a significant disruption to that ability, then that's one factor that, that is present in, in diagnosing a mental health problem. Um, and, and those things often don't, are unlikely to go away on their own. Versus, um, you know, and, and, and that's over the course of time. So it's not like one day I had trouble fulfilling all my responsibilities you know, therefore, I, I probably have a mental health problem. That's not the case. It's over, you know, a, an extended period of time that a person experiences that. And it's just, you know, an intractable problem that is having a significant impact on their ability to function. So I, I would say if you see that, then there's a, a good chance that the person has some kind of, of mental health problem that might require um, help from a professional who can help them get past that. Because like you said, sometimes um, pastoral intervention, if it's even if it's coming from a good place in terms of motivation, can can be unhelpful if it's if there's not a good understanding of what's actually needed, um, and even if it even if it's not actually harmful, it, it it can be unproductive 
because what the person actually may need is help from somebody who understands how to deal with the issue that's kind of disrupting their ability to cope. Churches are voluntary organizations. They tend to be self-perpetuating, and especially smaller churches are often family system churches, which brings up a real challenge to church leaders and pastors when you have difficult people in the church. And often there are difficult people who are in the life of the church and have problems. So what do you do, or what does a pastor or church leader do when someone in the congregation is exhibiting possible mental illness, but they don't see it? and they're actually disruptive and perhaps even damaging to their own family and, and damaging to the church as well. So give some advice to pastors on how to deal with this. Yeah, this is really hard. And I, I believe me, I want to acknowledge this is not easy. You know, it's not like I'm asking pastors to do something easy here. This is hard. And yet it's, it's real, it's present, it's before us. And so, you know, we can't ignore the, the importance of this ministry. Um, so. Uh, one thing that can be helpful is to understand that for for many people that their mental health condition keeps them from understanding that they have a mental health condition. You know, that that can be an actual symptom of a mental health problem that they, they lack insight into the reality of their illness. Um, so sometimes, you know, we may be trying to convince someone that they have a problem when they actually lack the ability to to recognize that. And so we you know, sometimes it's it's a matter of just letting that go. Um, but at the same time, that doesn't mean that we allow people to just do, you know, to um, exhibit behaviors that are inappropriate or, you know, do whatever they want when it has a negative impact on other people. So I think one important thing is to understand the importance of, of boundaries um, and of consistent boundaries. And that can actually be very helpful to people who have mental illness because it can be hard for them to understand where boundaries lie if someone doesn't isn't explicit about them um, but they need to be consistent so explaining to people you know I, I don't have to try to, f to fix this person but I can explain to this person that this particular behavior is not appropriate you know or not acceptable or that it's hurtful to other people um, so you know you don't letting people know where those boundaries lie and letting them know when they've crossed them can be important and useful um, but you know coupling that with compassion and understanding that um, that having a mental illness makes for a hard way to live you know living with mental mental illness symptoms can be very difficult so you know let's have compassion for the people who are dealing with that and, and developing a better understanding or a better sense of empathy for what that might be like. Um, because sometimes we, we see a person who behaves in a certain way and we think that's, that's not right. You know, there's something wrong with them and I don't want to be around that because it, it makes us feel uncomfortable without kind of taking that extra step to re recognize, okay, if that, if, what it, would it be like to actually walk around, you know, hearing voices talking to me all the time? How might I behave if that were happening to me? Well, maybe, maybe that's why that person behaves that way. Or, you know, just feeling like fighting the impulse to end my life all the time. Well, maybe that's why that person behaves that way. So I think, you know, compassion and empathy coupled with strong and consistent boundaries can be a good approach. Um, I think it's also to recognize the difference between rational and irrational fear here, because sometimes our, our reaction is, one of fear 
because we just don't understand what's going on with the person. And, you know, they don't, they're not able to kind of bring themselves into alignment with our expectations for how people behave. And yet it can be valuable to stop and think, is there actually a reason to be afraid here? Or am I just in territory that feels unknown to me? And that's why I feel uncomfortable. Um, so if there's a reason to be afraid, you know, if that fear is rational, it is appropriate to, um, to intervene to keep everyone safe. And if that fear is not rational, then, you know, there's not really any need to be afraid. And we can kind of let that go and, and maybe allow for different ways of behaving that aren't really hurting anybody um, while setting the boundaries around things that really are important. In very extreme cases, someone has a weapon is threatening their own lives, uh, their own life, or uh, someone else's life. I, I, most people know call 911, so they they realize that's the the extreme case. But one notch below that, many times people will call a pastor and say, "We have this situation in our family. Someone who is so depressed she won't get out of bed. Uh, someone who is uh, acting out in really uncomfortable ways." So what emergency uh, legal resources, what, what's available short of 911 uh, for churches and families to get help? Yeah. So first of all, 911 is always appropriate if there's actual imminent threat. You know, if someone proposes a danger to themselves or to others, it is appropriate to call the police. And the police actually have the power to take a person into custody and um, take them to treatment and enforce a, a hold on them so that they have to um, receive a certain amount of treatment. And that, that length of that treatment stay depends on what state you're in. Um, and some of the other resources do as well. So if there's, you know, not a, a situation that's not actually life-threatening but might require some kind of intervention, you know, the, the resources that are available are going to vary from state to state and from community to community. Um, some areas have mental health courts. Some areas have um, special task force, task forces as part of their law enforcement. Um, some have, you know, really good resources in the area in terms of treatment programs that are accessible and welcoming, and, and others don't. So this is, in, in fact, in some areas of the country, there's very little available in terms of mental health care. So it's going to kind of depend on what's out there and what's available. But most of the time, um, a pastor or any other private citizen does not have the capacity or the, you know, the legal right to force someone to receive care. Um, and family members don't either. And this can be extremely frustrating for loved ones um, because when somebody is, say, you know, unable to get out of bed or even um, experiencing a psychotic episode where they're terribly confused and, um, you know, maybe leaving home, you know, going out onto the streets, they don't necessarily have the, the power to do anything about that. Um, they have to um, to call in that the legal side when the person becomes a danger to themselves or others. So unfortunately, there can be a gap in here when a person is significantly impaired but not dangerous where it can be hard to find resources. But there is such a thing as a mental health intervention that you can do, and there are specialists who will help with that kind of intervention. And then, you know, just, just helping the person recognize how their um, behavior, how their difficulty is having an impact on the people they love can sometimes help can convince somebody to receive care. 
apparently is on the rise is depression and suicide among teenage girls. That is just so sad. So why is this? And a lot of articles or, or TV shows are increasingly connecting this to social media, to bullying, to use of the internet or not sleeping enough or sleeping well. Are, are these really what's going on or is there something else? What's happening here? Yeah, I think the, it's important to recognize, for one thing, that um, that suicide is, you know, the most common risk factor for suicide is mental illness. And it can be depression or it can be some other form of mental illness. But um, when people are tempted to dismiss mental health problems as problems that are not that serious or they're not life-threatening, um, that's a very that's a very dangerous mistake because mental illness actually can be life-threatening and it's important to understand also that um, mental illness disproportionately affects young people so half of all cases of mental illness begin by the age of 14 and 75% begin by the age of 24 so people in their you know their their youth are actually quite vulnerable to mental health problems. And sometimes it's hard to, to tell the difference with a teenager, <laughs> maybe particularly a teenage girl, you know, the difference between um, just the normal difficulties of being a teen and something that's much more serious and that actually, you know, signals a mental health problem. So I, I think that's, you know, it's important to recognize that context. Um, Aside from that, I do think there's there's validity to these concerns. If you think about it, you know, some people say, you know, I just I don't understand why mental illness would be on the rise. You know, why would people be getting less mentally healthy when we have so much, you know, available to us? We have, you know, um, comfortable the capacity to live comfortable lives and um, to take care of ourselves, access to medical care, all of that, and yet it's important to note that one of the things that makes mental illness um, develop or that makes mental illness apparent is the level of demand in your life. And as our our society becomes more demanding on people, it becomes more difficult to function in that society, especially if you have some kind of something that's holding you back. Um, so I think this is a, this is a, a function partially of that level of demand that is present, especially on young people, that they are, you know, required to perform often at a very high level under a great amount of stress with often very little downtime um, and with a low level of, of interpersonal connection. So, you know, the, the ironic thing about social media is that Study after study has shown the more time you spend on social media, the less connected you feel to other people, you know, the lonelier you feel. So, and, and those, that, that kind of problem, that sense of disconnection from others can create all kinds of problems. So, yeah, I think just in general, this, this high demand that affects um, people's health overall can absolutely affect their mental health and can, can reveal a problem that can be very serious. Let's go back to or continue with depression for a moment. There's an assumption I think that many of us make that if you can, from a family physician or from a psychiatrist, get a prescription for antidepressant drugs, that that will be the cure. And yet, 
I've read repeated articles and seen uh, news reports saying that they don't work for 80% and that there have not been new uh, pharmaceutical products uh, developed in recent years. And that, that's discouraging when uh, that right. seems to be the hope. So what's the place here for medicine and for other things in addressing particularly depression? Yeah, I think it's, again, important to recognize that nearly 80% of prescriptions that are written for, for um, antidepressants are written by someone other than a psychiatrist. Um, so they're written by often a general medical doctor or maybe some other kind of health professional who has the capacity to write prescriptions, but does not necessarily have the training to determine that an antidepressant is really the appropriate uh, solution to that problem, or that that's the right antidepressant to prescribe. Um, so, they, so in some cases, when antidepressants are not working, um, it's possible that they're actually not the appropriate treatment for the, for the issue. Um, and it's also important to recognize that um, depression is, can be a very complex illness. Um, you know, the funny, the interesting thing about schizophrenia, like my mom has been diagnosed with, is it is arguably the most severe form of, of mental illness and the most highly disruptive to a person's functioning. And yet it's among the most straightforward forms of mental illness because it's very biological, it's very um, clear the treatment that's needed, and it's, it's really medically-based treatment. With something like depression, it can have many, many different causes, and it might be medical, you know, it might be a matter of brain chemistry, but it might also be a matter of um, you know, a lifestyle issue or a person's, the way a person is talking to themselves. Um, that can actually send a person kind of down into a, a black hole. And and you can apply medication to a situation like that. But ultimately, what needs to happen is the, that that circumstance or that pattern in the person's life needs to change or the depression is, is going to continue. So um, I think it's important to recognize there are other things that are needed here. Many people with depression also need therapy. Um, many need to make lifestyle modifications. They need to do a better job of self-care. Um, in some cases, they have a, another medical problem that might actually be causing the depression. For example, um, a person whose thyroid is not functioning at, at the appropriate level can experience depression that's actually caused by the thyroid problem. That's what needs to be treated. So taking an antidepressant is not going to, obviously, take care of the thyroid problem. So it's, it's very complex. Um, and, and it, medicine can be very important, but it's rarely in cases of, of anxiety or depression um, related disorders, it's rarely the only solution. And, and sometimes it's not really needed. Sometimes what a person needs is really just to do therapy or, you know, to make some kind of change in their lives. So, um, so I think that's important to recognize here. Now, there are cases of depression that do not respond well to the treatments we have now. And I think there's, there are people who are, you know, working on some alternative treatments and there are experimental treatments out there. Um, and hopefully we'll get to the point where we have some breakthroughs in that area. It seems safe to say that there continues to be a social stigma that goes with, um, with mental illness. So mm -hmm. I want you to talk about that, but also is this something that is a human, it's universal, or is this American and is the stigma any different in the church than it is in the broader society? 
Yeah, stigma is a huge problem. In fact, I think in general, many people with, with mental illness would say that the greatest source of suffering is the illness itself. And the second is the stigma that, you know, just it causes its own kind of secondary suffering. And stigma is a huge problem because it keeps many people from receiving treatment, you know, from acknowledging that they need it and receiving it. In the United States, only about 50% of people who need treatment for mental health problems receive it. About 50%. So, you know, there are, there are different reasons for that. One of them is access problems and shortage of mental health professionals, but one of them is stigma. So many people will not actually seek out or receive care when they, when they need it. Um, so this is a huge issue. And yeah, it's frustrating for, you know, those of us who are advocating around this issue, it's, it's frustrating to see stigma perpetuated. Um, and I think it's most frustrating for many of us to see it perpetuated in our churches. Um, so stigma, I think it's a human problem, essentially. Um, and it's something that's been with us for a long time. It's not new. If you, if you go back to sort of the beginning of Western civilization in ancient Rome and ancient Greece, um, you'll see that mental illness was stigmatized there. In fact, in, that, in that, those societies, if a person was mentally ill and displayed you know, symptoms of mental illness, they were assumed to be possessed by evil spirits. And the, and the other people were they would keep their distance from these folks because they were afraid that if they got too close, those evil spirits would fly out of the person with the mental illness and, and land on them or possess them. Um, so they were literally marginalized. You know, people would keep their distance from them because they didn't want to, quote, catch the mental illness. Um, and that, that kind of thinking is still with us in many ways. Even if we don't, you know, think of it that way, um, we're often keeping our distance from people who are affected by mental illness. And in, in some of, many of our explanations for it um, and the ways we respond really deepen the stigma. And so it's not, a, it's not a problem that has originated in the U.S. It's not a problem that has originated in our churches. And yet it's very much present um, in our churches. And I think we have some additional layers of stigma in our churches, like when we in, in some churches where there is an automatic assumption, very similar to pagan societies, that if you display symptoms of mental illness, it means you're demon-possessed, and we need to try to, you know, cast that demon out of you. Um, in many cases, people who have mental illness are told that they just need to pray more, or they just need to have more faith, and their illness will go away. Sometimes people are told that they are, this is a punishment from God for some uh, egregious sin in their lives that they may not be aware of. Um, sometimes they're told that it's not a real illness and they shouldn't take medicine because um, it's just a spiritual problem that needs to be treated spiritually. All of those um, stigmatizing beliefs and messages are very damaging. And again, if we go back to this idea that you know, mental illness is not life-threatening, <laughs> you know, it is. 91% uh, of people who die by suicide, experts believe, are experiencing a, a symptoms of a mental illness at the time. So mental illness very much is life-threatening, um, and not just because of suicide, but also because it makes people vulnerable, and people are um, often victimized when they have a mental illness. So it's a big deal, and um, 
you know, I think we, we, the answer, or at least part of the answer is that we really need to get better educated around this issue, have better information. I think much of what's out there in terms of information about mental illness is really mythology um, and old information. And we have, I, I think, really no excuse, especially as church leaders, um, not to have a better basic understanding of what mental illness is, um, what different forms are, how they're treated, um, and what people need from us when they're walking through a mental health problem. But, you know, it's very tempting, like with other forms of problems that we see, to want, we want to see progress. <laughs> you know, we want to see people get better, and we often want to fix them. Uh, and when, when they have a problem that does not respond to our attempts to fix it, then, then often we dismiss it because it, does, it just doesn't fit that narrative. Um, so that's very damaging to people. And I do see that we're making progress here, but we have a long way to go. So let me just wrap up by asking you, so what, what can churches do? What should they do? And um, are, are there some examples of churches, you don't have to name the church, but some things that churches are doing right or doing well? Yeah. Um, in fact, in my in my book, Troubled Minds, there's one chapter that is kind of devoted to describing a few churches that have good programs in this area. And all of them are have kind of developed on, at a grassroots level by people who themselves have been affected in some way by mental illness, either their own or that of a loved one. And so, so I think that's one important point about what churches can do is that um, this does not have to be a ministry that the pastor undertakes. Um, doesn't have to be one more thing to add to the pastor's plate. There's, there's a very good chance that in just about any church in this country, you have someone whose life has been profoundly affected by mental illness and who is in a good place and, and at a point where they are able to do ministry to others out of that place. So that's, that's one thing is, you know, we can empower and, and, uh, release those people to do ministry within our churches. Often that looks like simply um, setting up a peer support ministry. There are groups out there that will train you and provide the materials you need to start a Christ-centered support group ministry in your church. Um, groups like Fresh Hope for Mental Health and the Mental Health Grace Alliance, which are both wonderful ministries. Um, there are also groups like uh, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, which is often called NAMI, um, which has branches around the country and in nearly every area of the country um, that does that offers support groups and, and educational classes. And all those classes often meet in churches. Um, this is a secular organization, but it's very faith-friendly, and they love to set up programs in churches because they recognize the important role churches play. Um, and, you know, it's interesting to me how often we overlook the practical needs of people who are affected by mental illness. Churches are really good at reaching out to people in crisis and meeting their needs. You know, you have a death in the family or someone in your family is hospitalized. We're going to bring you meals. We're going to take care of your kids. We're going to ask you how you're doing. We're going to visit you in the hospital. You know, we're going to do all of these things to help you through that crisis. And yet mental illness is often referred to as the no casserole illness. Because chances are, if you're experiencing a mental health crisis in your family, nobody's stopping by with a casserole that evening. 
People who are hospitalized for mental health problems often don't get hospital visits. Um, people often overlook the great financial need that can accompany a mental health crisis because of lost work, expensive medications, hospitalizations, and you know, this is a need that people have to have uh, healthy functioning communities in their lives and friendships. So, you know, just because we, we can serve as triage centers, helping to connect people to mental health care, and that's actually often the role that churches are playing. Um, and yet, when we refer someone to outside mental health care, we need to remember that's not all they need. They also need spiritual care. They also need to be reminded that God has not walked away from them, that He still loves them, and they need friendship. They need they need to know that they have a community, people who are willing to draw near to them rather than draw away from them in this time of crisis. Um, so, the, you know, that's just a handful of things churches can do. Our guest on today's conversation has been Amy Simpson, author, speaker, and leadership coach. And I'm Leith Anderson. And on behalf of us all, very special thanks to Amy. The National Association of Evangelicals is where we use influence for good. Today's conversation is one of many ways we connect and represent evangelical Christians in the United States. To discover more NAE topics and resources for you and your church, please follow along on Twitter at NAEvangelicals or on our Facebook page for the National Association of Evangelicals. And sign up for our email list when you visit our website at nae.net.